The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 13, The Mission of the Church. Our text, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 17. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Will you turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, and our paragraph for studying today is verses 11 through 17. God's call to church action, the fellowship of ministration. Last week we were seeing how the apostles stressed the costliness of the ministry and our thoughts were engaged with the trials as well as the travail of standing for Christ in a corrupt generation. Whether in Paul's day or right now in the contemporary culture and climate of our present age. But lest we should be discouraged, Paul now reminds his readers that there is a mission. The church has a mission. You have a mission as an individual. I have a mission. And as a church, we have a mission. And to understand our vocation in the world is to be more than compensated by the pain and tears of Christian service. Whatever it costs, it's worth it. For what costs counts. And what counts costs. So we need to keep our spiritual eyes ever and always on the target of the ministry. And Paul sums up the target of the ministry in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. He shows us that the validity of the gospel is such that when we understand it, when we know what God calls us to as preachers of the gospel, whether by life or by lip, we persuade men, whether it's in the city of Corinth, the city of London, or the city of New York. And I want us to see this morning the background motivation for this persuasive life that you and I are called to live. I want you to notice that there must be, first of all, the revealing power of divine light the revealing power of divine light. Study again verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now Paul has just drawn attention to the fact in the previous verse that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may give an account of ourselves for the things done in the body whether they be good or bad. And the thought of the revealing Shekinah the glory of Christ, the light of Christ, fills him with an awesome, healthy fear. And he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, the revealing power of divine light demands three things. Will you notice, please? Verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. First, the purity of conscience. The purity of conscience. Notice as he says in the end of verse 11, we are made manifest in your consciences. Now the apostle has already touched upon this subject in previous chapters. You'll remember in chapter 1 verse 12 and again in chapter 4 in verse 2 
We dealt very thoroughly with that at the time. Paul had been accused of ulterior motives and lack of integrity. But once again, he says, I made manifest to God. Say what you will. God knows my conscience. And this word manifest that he uses in verse 11 is precisely the same word used in verse 10 concerning our appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. Exactly the same word. Just as we are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ in a coming day, so we appear before God now, every moment we live. Whether in the solitude of your study, the quietness of your bedroom, whether behind that executive desk, whether that classroom at school or college, whether that shop, whether that negotiating bar, wherever it is, you are manifest to God. There is never a moment that you're not under the eyes of an all-seeing God. The prayer of Hagar could well be used, Thou God seest me. And Paul adds, I trust also that we're made manifest in your consciences. And if my conscience is honest before God and pure before God, I know it's honest and pure before men. A pure conscience before God is the only secret of a pure conscience before, conscience before men. And we can never persuade men of our gospel, of the validity and veracity of our gospel, until we know what it is to have pure consciences. There is something which comes through a man's lips, something which comes through a man's life, which puts a lie to his integrity and sincerity if his conscience isn't pure. The revealing light of God is a motivation. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Why? Because of the light of his judgment seat. We persuade men. The revealing power of divine light demands a pure conscience. But secondly, it demands an honest character. Verse 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you an occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. Still with his critics in mind, Paul continues to defend himself against the charge of self-praise. As a servant of God, he's reminding his readers that he has no intention of writing a testimonial to prove that he's an honest man. His accusers might need outward evidences to prove honesty of character, but he says, all I want you, all I want you to look for is what comes out of my heart. Remember that church at Corinth would have never come into existence. If it hadn't been for a life in which Jesus Christ is reigning, and releasing. Look what God has done in my heart. I told you my conversion story again and again. How Christ met me in all the zeal of an arch persecutor. And how I met him on that Damascus road. And how he cleansed my life and changed my life and commissioned my life. All I say to you comes from the heart. And God's revealing light demands that honesty of character. Yes, my friends, what convinces men and women of true honesty is not what comes from the head, but what issues out of the heart. The old book reminds us, you remember, out of the heart proceed the things which either defile a man or index a man, reveals his true character. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Some time ago, we used a questionnaire here at Calvary to find out what people thought of our television program. 
And one of the questions I put down on this particular document was this searching one. What do you look for in the preacher of the gospel? Do you know it was interesting to study those replies? Invariably, the answer came back again and again. Sincerity, reality, relevance. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. That is what Paul's talking about here. People aren't impressed with what comes out of the head, not ultimately. It's what comes out of the heart. A man may have the most erudite expression of the gospel. He may know his Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He may be able to quote all the verses that encompass biblical teaching and yet lose men right, left, and center. It's what comes out of the heart. It's the character which is behind the message that sells the message. And Jesus taught this. The Apostle Paul enunciates it again in Romans chapter 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For, for, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The revealing power of divine light demands a purity of conscience, an honesty of character, and then will you notice, thirdly, a sanity of conduct. A sanity of conduct. An important verse that. Look at 13. For whether we be mad, insane, beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. The world has a whole list of derogatory terms which it flings at men who have higher standards and nobler aims than their fellows. A favorite term is mad. The word mad. Jesus was said to be beside himself. Festus shouted from the judgment seat that Paul was mad. And so it'll be right through to the end of time. But before God and before men, you and I have to be absolutely sure that by the restraining and controlling power of an indwelling spirit, we are saved. That is to say, we are absolutely balanced. That we're poised between the extremes of madness on the one side and complete stoicism on the other. And I want to tell you that when that sanity is released in the power of the Holy Ghost, men may scoff, men may sneer, but underneath they love to know that quality of life. We live in a mad, mad, mad world. Insanity is all over the way. And to see someone poised with that glorious balance and resilience, that God-given sanity in a mad world is the most convincing, persuading thing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter speaks to this in the most eloquent way. Listen. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Notice that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you because of your saying your good manner of living. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for wrongdoing. The sanity of conscience. So if we would fulfill our target in persuading men and women to accept the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must know it in our lives through the revealing power 
of divine light. There must be a purity of conscience. There must be an honesty of character. There must be a sanity of conduct. As someone has pointed out, the most unanswerable argument for Christianity is a transparent Christian. The revealing power of divine light. But here's another motivation. Notice it. The redeeming power of divine love. The redeeming power of divine love. Verse 14, please. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Now it seems quite clear that Paul is not speaking here of his love for Christ. He is emphasizing here Christ's love for him and through him. Paul had discovered that the redeeming love of Christ affects the believer in a twofold manner to which we address ourselves now. He's spoken, remember, of the revealing light, now the redeeming love. Two mighty motivations for persuading men. And this redeeming power of love reveals itself in two ways. First, the love of Christ compels the surrender of the Christian. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. You see, there is a substitutionary character about the redeeming love of Christ which compels us to accept Christ as our Savior. We can't look at yon man of Calvary giving himself in total self-sacrifice without a deep sense of obligation to reciprocate that love. Out there amongst the hills, my Savior died pierced by those cruel nails, was crucified. Lord Jesus, thou hast done all this for me. Henceforward I would live only for thee. That's the only language of a man who understands Calvary. Christ died for all. Therefore we've all been included in that death and God will not demand of us that which was included in that death. For when he died at Calvary, he took our sins upon him there and dealt with them forever. Indeed, Paul says that in this closing word of the whole chapter, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We cannot kneel before the cross, I repeat, and wonder at the amazing truth that what I deserved he took, my sin he made his own, and there he dealt with it finally and forever out of sheer love. For the unmeriting wretch that I am, I cannot understand that without crying, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We persuade men, says Paul, not only by the revealing power of divine light, but the redeeming power of divine love. It compels the surrender of the Christian. But more than that, notice, the love of Christ impels the service of the Christian. Impels the service of the Christian. The love of Christ constraineth us that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. The redeeming love of Christ is not only substitutionary, it's revolutionary. Instead of serving ourselves, now we serve the Savior. In substitution, we see Christ dying for us. In identification, we see ourselves dying with him. So that now self is ruled out. The eye of my life is God. It's Jesus and Jesus only I serve. And having died with him, I now live 
for him. It impels Christian service. Jesus becomes enthroned as Lord in our lives and the Spirit of God fills our lives with a love which flows out in Christian service. This is the meaning of the word constraineth. Look at that word for a moment. Hold it in your attention. That word constraineth, the Greek denotes the thought of being confined within the limits of a certain course of action which never deviates from a set purpose. This is how the love of God motivated and activated our Lord Jesus Christ. He could say, I have a baptism to be baptized with and I am straightened until it be accomplished. He was looking on to Calvary, you see. He was looking on to Calvary with all its pain, with all its tears, with all its suffering, with all its shame. And he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and I'm straightened, constrained until it be accomplished. That's our word. That's our word. For him it meant the path of the cross even unto death that he might be raised to the glory of God the Father. For us it means the path of the cross in order that self might die and we might rise in newness of life to serve Jesus and Jesus only. It impels Christian service. So we see and we know the redeeming power of Christ only when we sense it thronging us, confining us, driving us in the set purpose and pathway of God's service and appointment for us. There's a beautiful illustration used by Dr. Luke in the Acts of the Apostles that I want to use now. Paul, arriving in Corinth, was pressed in spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Pressed in spirit. Same Greek word, pressed in spirit. The Revised Version reads that Paul was constrained by the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he was impelled by the Spirit to preach and teach Christ in that ancient and wicked city of Corinth. He had to do it. The love of Christ pressed him, constrained him, confined him, impelled him. We can readily see how men and women would be persuaded by our gospel if we knew something of the redeeming power of divine love compelling us and impelling us. Love is a universal language. It requires no introduction. It expects no interpreter. When our lives become the vehicles for the expression of the constraining love of Jesus, we found the key to evangelistic persuasiveness. I remember many years ago, as a lad coming back from the west coast of Africa on a Portuguese banana boat, 44 days on the water, our first port of call after Lubito Bay was Angola and the coast there. And I never forget an incident which occurred on that trip right from Lubito Bay straight through to Lisbon. A man filled with disease, infested with some kind of skid complaint, was taken out of his cabin and dragged through the stern of the boat and left there to die. One of the cooks used to put a bit of food in a cup or on a plate and push it with a stick towards the end of that boat and leave it there. If he was strong enough, he rolled over and ate a little. This came to the attention of my parents. 
and particularly of my dear mother. And as a boy, I remember watching my mother with two sons and a great risk to take, kneeling on her little cabin floor and asking God for protecting her from any infection, and then equipping herself with drugs, bandages, and most of all, a burning heart for souls, went and dressed that man's wounds and gave him drugs, day after day after day, to the amazement of the total crew and passengers. And that man got well. And that man was not only gloriously converted, but that man became a witness to that total crew. And something happened on that boat that God will register one day in eternity. There wasn't a doctor on board. There wasn't a nurse who would do anything for that man. But one little slip of a missionary, my dear little mother, knelt by that man day by day. I can't explain that in any other way than in the context of this verse this morning. The love of Christ constrains the love of Christ compels. The love of Christ impels us to do things we would never otherwise do. Do you know anything about that? Do I know anything about that? The persuasiveness of the redeeming power of divine love. But alongside of that is the climax of this whole passage. We have the redeeming power of divine light. We have the redeeming, the revealing power of divine light. We have the redeeming power of divine love, but we have here the renewing power of divine life. Wherefore, know we no man after the flesh. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Verses 16 and 17, to which I draw your very careful attention as we conclude this morning. In these two verses, Paul illustrates how his determination to live no longer for self, but rather for Christ, has found practical expression. The judgment he had formed concerning the death and resurrection of Christ had effected such a transformation in his outlook that now he had a new view of man, a new view of man, a view of man that he'd never known before, with all his training and all his education. And what happened to Paul miraculously can take place in your experience and mine when you know what it is to be identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Once we become united to our Savior through death and resurrection by the Spirit, something happens. Something happens which changes and alters our outlook completely. Now I want you to see those two things. First of all, there is a new conception of man. An absolutely new conception of man. Look at verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Have you ever wrestled with that text? Have you ever tried to understand what Paul is saying here? And don't take it out of context. Interpret it in the whole sweep of the teaching we're considering right at this very moment. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Indeed, says Paul, even though I knew Christ after the flesh, henceforth I know him no more after the flesh. 
If I have really been compelled by the love of Christ to kneel at the cross and identify myself with his self-giving, if I have risen from the cross to go forth under the impelling power of divine love to live only for Jesus, then I never look at men as once I used to. It's all changed. It's all changed. What does he mean? Well, you see, to be united with Christ through his death and resurrection is to gain new standards of judgment, new ways of looking at things. Knowing a man after the flesh is to know him by the outward accidents and circumstances of his life, such as his color, his wealth, his rank, his culture, his knowledge. But Paul had ceased to judge men by these standards. With him, the one question that mattered was whether man was by his own act and choice standing in the good of all that Christ did for him at Calvary. Having received the salvation which Jesus Christ makes possible. And Paul says, I can only see people in terms of Calvary. And what you see when you see people in terms of Calvary, I'll tell you, my friend, you see them kneeling at the cross as sinners. As sinners. Rank doesn't matter at all. Education makes no difference. Culture makes no difference. Education makes no difference. Color makes no difference. They're there at the cross as sinners for whom Christ died. And no other way can I see them. And if they're there at the cross through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they become new creatures, as we shall see in a moment. And because new creatures, then they're brothers in Christ. And I see them as brothers in Christ. In Christ. No other place. One gets a little bit bored, sometimes almost irritated, when people come to me and say, here is Mr. So-and-so, and begin to string out their degrees, their background, and all they represent in the world, as if it meant one single thing in relation to eternity. The scripture teaches that we're to give honor to whom honor is due. The scripture teaches that we're to recognize dignities and magistrates and kings and all in authority. But that's only in terms of the outside, not the inside. In the church of Jesus Christ and in the family of God, we know no man after the flesh or else Calvary has never penetrated. I'm telling you, if you got hold of that, if I got hold of that, your entire art of persuasiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ would be revolutionized. You'd never choose the man you're going to win to Christ. You'd never begin to argue as to who he is, what he is, where he comes from. He's a sinner for whom Christ died, and he's a potential new creature. In Jesus, and that's all that matters. Yes, to strengthen his argument, in case this be misunderstood, to strengthen his argument, Paul goes right on to says to say, this is exactly what happens in his view of Jesus. As far as Paul was concerned, something happened at Calvary which changed his total conception of Jesus Christ. Before, before he understood Calvary. The passion of our Savior Jesus Christ was nothing more than the death of a man born in obscurity, living in restricted surroundings, dying a humiliating death. Indeed, because of his judgment of Jesus, he despised him as an imposter and persecuted his followers and raised the assemblies of God under Jesus Christ to dust and ashes. 
And that was his judgment of Jesus Christ. Imagine that. The greatest man who ever stood on human, on human soil. The son of God himself. The mighty God penetrating human flesh. God manifest in the flesh. And this was his judgment of it. An imposter. An obscurantist. A fanatic. Dying a humiliating death. And he despised him and rejected him. And persecuted his followers. That was Paul's judgment of Jesus in the flesh. But after his conversion on the Damascus road, all was changed. All was changed. Now Jesus Christ was the redeemer of the world. For Christ has died for all, he says. Christ has died for all, therefore he's the redeemer of the world. And if he's the redeemer of the world, then he's the redeemer of every man. Every woman, every child. And if that is so, then he's savior of all. And if he's savior of all, then I am united with all. And therefore, I accept Christ as my Savior, and I accept all he saves as my brethren. Henceforth, no man after the flesh, even Jesus, no longer after the flesh. To me, this is one of the greatest problems in the world today. This barrier, this barrier between people. We categorize them. We talk about class distinctions with all its snobbery and arrogance and ignorance. We talk about the slum class. We talk about men and women of other cultures. The Christian can't see it that way. He can't see it that way if he knows anything about Calvary. If that isn't so, I want the first person in this audience or who hears my voice to come and show me on the point of sound exegesis any other truth taught than that which I'm teaching this morning. But not only is there this mighty, mighty new conception of man, but notice with the new conception of man, there is a new creation of man. A totally new creation of man. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I've known this text taken out of context again and again to preach gospel sermons on it. And undoubtedly, it's a great gospel message and a great gospel text. But I want to tell you, in its context... It has to do specifically and precisely with what we're talking about today. Persuading men. Persuading men. Here the apostle reaches another great climax. The regenerating experience that had taken place in his life could take place in any other man's life, he says. God had prophesied through his servant Isaiah that such a day would come when men and women would become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And if you're following me closely, you'll observe that Paul is actually quoting from Isaiah here. The text in its fullness is, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I'll do a new thing. It shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. God is saying literally, whatever they are in the flesh... Whatever they are in their background, whatever they are, still doesn't meet my standard. The only person I accept is a man who has experienced this regenerating, transforming change. And until a man becomes new in Christ Jesus, what he is in the flesh means absolutely nothing. So it is true today. In the words of Professor Tasker, every man regenerated by the Spirit of God is a new creation. And a world in which such a creation exists is potentially at least a new world. In this new world, there are no personal discriminations. In this world, there are no racial tensions. In this world, we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the renewing power of divine life. 
No thoughtful man or woman can understand this glorious truth in our contemporary world and not be persuaded by the relevance and validity of the gospel. It wasn't so very long ago that I had a trip from South America back to this country with a gentleman whose name is known all over this country. And we got into quite a theological discussion as to what was the secret of our present dilemma in this country with racial tension and with the distinctions that are made that are creating possibly a greater threat to our country than even the war outside of it. He said, what's your answer? I said, I'll tell you what my answer is. Galatians 2 and 20. He said, what is Galatians 2 and 20? I said, you ought to know you're a preacher. But since you don't, I'll quote it for you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, what's that got to do with our situation today? I said, I'll tell you. I said, when that message is preached and received and practiced, I want to tell you this, there are no longer any distinctions between, between, because at Calvary, because at Calvary, all that I am in color, in creed, in race, or what have you, dies. And what is true of my brother, dies. And we know one another on one dimension alone, and that is our common life in Jesus. And there's nothing else that will unite. You'll never do it by legislation. You'll never do it by raising the standard of living. All those things are purely secondary. For you can turn the greatest housing problem that was ever devised into a squalid mess in only a matter of five years. You can give jobs, and you can give jobs that satisfy. But when the jobs have satisfied and there's nothing more to realize, there'll be the strikes. You can legislate, but you'll never legislate love and you'll never legislate understanding. At one point or another, there'll be rebellion and resistance against legislation. But I said, when you find two people who are made one in Jesus Christ, I don't care where I am or who I am. I cannot be anything else than satisfied. For I said, remember the word that's recorded for us in Hebrews 13, my friend, I said, be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't care where you go in this world today, you'll find where there are people who are one in Jesus Christ. Don't judge their happiness by their surroundings, by their homes, by their jobs, by their degrees, by their background, by their color, but by their oneness in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have better housings, housing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have better laws. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uplift our country. All those things are outflow. But the principle and heart of our whole message is simply this. Oneness in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that's our greatest persuasive tool today in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If only we're free and absolutely fearless in our message. Yes, the revealing power of divine light, the redeeming power of divine love, the renewing power of divine life. What does the first do? Let's don't forget it. It makes us pure in our conscience, honest in our character, sane in our conduct. And you show me a man whose purity of conscience, whose honesty of character, whose sanity of conduct, 
makes an impact upon the world and I'll tell you a man who sold his gospel. Take our next one, the redeeming power of divine love. Here is a love which compels and impels. And I've just told you of my beloved mother who was impelled to do a job that most of us would have never touched here this morning. She did it. How? Love. Show me a man who's driven out into the streets and into the slums and into the pocket areas of trouble today with the impelling, compelling love of Jesus and he'll sell his gospel. And ultimately and finally, there is this renewing power of divine life, which gives me a complete new conception of man. I don't care what his problems are. In the flesh, I don't see them. Why? Because I see a potential candidate for a new creation. For this new conception leads to a new creation. And when a man is a new creation in Christ Jesus, all things are passed away, all things have become new. And in this newness of life in Christ, the things that are secondary may have a bearing, but they don't spoil my peace or my fellowship or my oneness with a man I'm seeking to win. My subject this morning is target on the ministry. And if that isn't our target, I want you to tell me what is. This is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the church. And if you want to know my frank opinion, I want to tell you this, that when ministers leave the pulpit and when ministers leave the message and give themselves to secondary issues and concerns and don't preach the only message which is going to bring about the any kind of revival and reuniting of peoples that the Bible knows this side of the Lord's return, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I know you in church membership ranks have a great job to do in industry, in politics, and in every area, inspired and challenged and cleansed by the ministry that you receive from the pulpit. That's your task. And you should be an honest and good politician. And you should be an industrialist. And you should be a good professor. And you should be a good housewife. Whoever you are, if you're really receiving the word. But I'm telling you from the pulpit and lived out in our lives, that which is going to bring our church together, which is going to bring our country together, which is going to bring our peoples together, is not legislation primarily. It's not these other things which are so important in the view of some today. Wonderful as they are, it's getting men and women to bow at the cross and recognize there's only one who can solve our problems and that's God. And he does it by the revealing power of divine light. He does it by the redeeming power of divine love. He does it by the renewing power of divine life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we bow in thy presence, sobered and solemnized, and yet quickened by the truth of thy word. Forgive us that we have deviated from the simplicity and thrust of thy saving gospel. And grant, dear Lord, that having caught a vision of what thy purpose is for us as a church and as mission, we may return to these great principles. Oh, by the revealing power of divine light, the redeeming power of divine love, the renewing power of divine life. Oh, motivate our lives to persuade men with the only gospel that can change the world. Begin in us here this morning, and then through us to the world outside. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, 
who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.